Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Oligi from London. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find the show as well. Today we are talking about modern day slavery. And it's happening. It's happening right here in your backyard. And it's happening across the world in a way that you would probably not realize. We have Nick Grano, Chief Executive Officer of the Freedom Fund, joining us today on the Do One Better podcast. And we're going to be covering a wide range of angles regarding modern day slavery. So stay tuned. Without further ado, Nick, a big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today. Delighted to be here, Alberto. Excellent. Well, you're the CEO of the Freedom Fund. And why don't we start by finding out a little bit about the organization? What's it all about? Sure. So the Freedom Fund works on modern slavery and human trafficking. Um, and sometimes when people hear that, they say, well, didn't slavery end 200 years ago? But the, the reality is that people all around the world are subject to horrendous exploitation, forced and coerced to work or to provide sex. Um, there are some 50 million people estimated to be in a situation of slavery today. There are people who are working in the mines in Congo to produce coal tan, which powers our electric cars and mobile phones, or uh, men and boys for, forced to work on fishing boats you know, off the coast of Thailand, subject to violence, often pumped full of uh, drugs, to work brutal hours to produce fish that often ends up on our supermarket shelves. So you'll, you'll have heard about fast fashion and girls being exploited in factories and coerced and debts that they have to pay off. And then, of course, everyone has heard stories about um, girls, young women being forced into brothels, coerced, uh, exploited violently. So that's that's modern day slavery. And that's that's the issue that the Freedom Fund is working with partners all around the world to tackle. Yeah. And I understand you guys work with a lot of grassroots organizations uh, who are all over the place, right? Yeah, so our model is to work in countries with a really high burden of slavery. Uh, you know, that's often in South Asia or Africa, we're in Brazil, uh, and to work with local partners, grassroots organizations that are really close to the problem, right? Slavery is all about vulnerability. You and I will not be enslaved. Uh, the people who get enslaved are vulnerable, marginalized. I mean, the rest of us have been watching, for instance, the early days of the horror of the war in Ukraine and seeing women and children forced to flee. And there were people at the borders waiting to pick them up and exploit them. They were vulnerable. They had no protection mechanisms. Uh, they were desperate. And that's what exploiters prey on. Uh, and so in places like South Asia, you know, often you can come from a, um, from a marginalized caste or a religion that's a minority or you're a migrant. So you're vulnerable and often desperate. And so it's not, the situation is not as we might see in the movies like Taken or somewhere where someone is picked up off the streets and kidnapped. I mean, that, that's very uncommon. Rather, it's taking advantage of people's desperation and vulnerability to deceive them and trick them and then coerce them and force them into exploitation. Hmm. And you mentioned Asia, you mentioned Africa. Are there specific countries on that top 10 list, as it were, that are particularly uh, of concern? So the, one, of our, one of our founders, Walk Free, puts out an index every five years, the Global Slavery Index, which lists countries around the world. But, you know, the top 20 or 30 countries are countries in South Asia, ranging from Nepal, India, Bangladesh to Africa. 
uh, you know, places like Burkina Faso and Nigeria, um, Latin America, and, and often different forms of exploitation, right? I've given you some, there's sex trafficking, there's forced labor, there's forced marriage, which is a, which is a big problem. Um, child domestic work, often children kind of passed on by family members to work in situations where they end up being horrendously exploited. Um, so it takes many, many forms and operates in many countries, but it also operates, let's be very clear, it operates in the US, it operates in the UK. Um, there is slavery in every country we work in. And, and we here, I, I'm in the UK, you know, we should have the systems to better prevent it. Um, so everyone can do better on, on, on the slavery front in terms of tackling the, the vulnerabilities that lead to slavery. Yeah. And just like you mentioned initially that most people, when they think about slavery, they think about something from 200 years ago, but in actual fact, it's, it's a serious problem happening today. The other misconception arguably is that people in the UK, in the US may not necessarily appreciate that it's happening in their own backyard. Yeah, you know, here in the UK, there have been headlines recently about workers in factories producing fast fashion in the UK uh, that are subject to horrendous working conditions. Uh, in the US, you get people who are, you often get migrants, right? migrants trafficked across the border from Latin America who are desperately vulnerable and then forced to work in poultry factories and they're not paid, they're often exploited. If you're a woman, you're often coerced into sex as well. Right. So there are many, many scenarios where, I mean, if you start tracking the headline, it's quite shocking how many cases end up where people have been trafficked into uh, these extreme forms of exploitation. Now, in the UK, the government takes an active stand trying to battle this issue. Uh, what do you find is the uh, disposition, let's say, of some of these national governments you referenced earlier when you come up to them and say, look, there's a problem here. Uh, you probably know about that. What are we going to do about it? What can we do about it? Uh, how receptive are they to this? Or, or, or is there an inclination to um, brush things under the carpet? Look, most most governments find the concept and the reality of slavery pretty abhorrent. Um, but uh, slavery thrives where you have vulnerable populations, where you have a marketplace of demand for coerced or very, very cheap labor, and you have weak rule of law. Uh, slavery is illegal in most countries, whether it's, you know, in terms of bonded labor or, or sex trafficking, um, but governments just often don't have the capacity or the will to enforce the law. Uh, and it's that really dangerous combination if you are a marginalized population. So if you are an ethnic minority, the authorities just may not really put much effort into addressing abuses. We saw this during COVID where Populations, migrants in particular, forced to flee between, you know, Myanmar and Thailand, and and authorities often just don't pay much attention or care much about migrants. I mean, it happens here in the UK. Um, you know, migrants are often the victims of slavery. People have been trapped into the country, and then told, "Hey, you're here illegally. So if you complain, we'll turn you over to the authorities." Uh, and we see unfairly a demonization of migrants, which makes them even more vulnerable. Yeah. And you touched on the capacity of governments uh, to uh, to do something about it, and also the uh, the ability to enforce these laws and willingness to enforce these laws. Uh, I did have a guest a while back. We talked about malnutrition in, in many of these uh, many countries in the developing world, where where governments' view was: look, we'd rather not talk about malnutrition here because we want to be a really attractive destination for foreign direct investment. So actually, we want to project a really great image to the external world. 
Do you detect any of that happening? I, I think absolutely. I think there's some of that. I mean, every country wants to kind of um, the outside world deny that they have a problem with these really extreme forms of exploitation. And I think there's a particular resentment about outsiders commenting on. And, and often there is a legitimate kind of colonial discourse. You know, you come to my country and talk about slavery. Um, what we would do, and, and the reason we work the way we do, is we work with local partners. So it's not the Freedom Fund going into Nepal or going into um, some of the other countries we work in, going into Thailand and saying, this is your problem. We work with grassroots organisations that are very close to the problem. We support them to do advocacy. And it's the grassroots partners that are drawing attention to the failings in the system. And it's their people that are being exploited. And, and so I think it's a much more powerful model, uh, particularly as we are rightly much more uh, aware and conscious of issues around, you know, decolonization of aid and, and kind of the idea of the imperial outsider coming in and telling everyone how things should operate. Um, so that's why we've chosen a model that, that we um, implement because we think it's much more attuned to the realities of the countries we're working in. Mm -hmm. Let's look at that model a little bit. You mentioned earlier about some of the funders that you have. Give us a little bit of insight into um, how you operate, how you're funded, where you're based. And I know that the sort of uh, the mechanisms you use to try to transform reality and improve reality is is multifaceted, right? You, you, you have some interventions, you have some uh, advocacy, you, you wish to achieve systemic change. Take us into the model of how you operate. So... Collaboration is the heart of the model, um, and that's easier said than done, but it, it operates at the top and the bottom levels, right? We are a collaborative fund. We have a number of funders who have come in, significant funders, the founders, starting with the founders, who pool their funding, unrestricted funding, uh, against a common strategy. So that's quite unusual, although it's a model that's getting a lot more attention these days right? because it's a way of scaling your impact. Um, so we're a collaborative fund, and then... In terms of our interventions on the ground, we work in a collaborative model. We will work in a country like, say, Nepal, uh, and we will go in and scope out the issues and work very closely with local partners who have much better knowledge and understanding of the issues than we do and be informed by those local partners. And if we decide to then start working there, we will select partners, um, prepare a proper strategy with them, and usually, so in Nepal, we'll work with, say, eight to ten partners. Um, because when you're working on vulnerability, there are many factors you have to address, right? There is the fact that people are often desperately poor and, as I keep on saying, are marginalised and vulnerable. They may also not be aware of their rights. I mean, in some of these countries, it's multi-generational slavery or multi-generational exploitation where their father or grandfather has taken on a debt with utterly... Um, outrageous interest rates that can never be paid off uh, and that debt is passed through generations all of which is illegal but it's a, a mechanism of control so you start informing the community that you're working with this is illegal and then you have to help them get their head around the fact that well it may be illegal but the alternative is really scary what happens so you have to look at alternative livelihoods vocational training trauma and the way to do that is not to have one organization saying well we'll do the awareness raising and the trauma counselling and the vocational, but find a number of partners, all of whom are expert in different ways, and bring them together. It's not easy, but when it's done well, it's really powerful because then those partners develop what we call network capital. You know, they build trust 
and capacity and start lobbying upwards. So to take Nepal, we are working with these very vulnerable communities called Hararacharwa, basically agricultural bonded laborers, often multi-generational exploitation, ignored by the government, weren't recognized as a vulnerable section of the population. And over the three or four years that we've been working there, they have organized and they have been advocating. And earlier this year, the government recognized their vulnerability and put in place special measures recognizing their status and giving them access to particular entitlements to help help reduce their vulnerability. So that's quite significant. And it's all done through the partnership with with local partners and and their collective um, advocacy and and organization. Are you finding the pendulums moving in the right direction? And I'm, I'm wondering, I'm wondering both in terms of whether the systems are changing in a favorable way, but also in terms, and you touched on de- decolonizing philanthropy and, and how international development is changing, whether you're also noticing the pendulum moving in the right direction with regard to being able to tackle these problems in-house, as it were, in-country, and relying less on the engagement from the international community. Are you, wh- wh- is the direction of travel positive? Um, you talked about the pendulum. I think there are a number of pendulums or pendula. I don't know how it works. <laughs> um, and so some are moving in the right direction and some are not, right? I mean, if you just look at slavery, the best estimates we have, the walk-free global slavery estimates and the International Labour Organization said um, about five years ago, they estimated 40 million people overall in, in slavery. And in the estimate they brought out earlier this year, it's 50 million. This is post-COVID. It's also better, better collection of data. But you know that that direction of travel is is deeply distressing. Uh, it appears that the situation is getting worse. Um, on the other hand, if you look at business awareness of forced labour in their supply chains, if you look at the focus paid to issues around um, fast fashion, uh, to um, forced labour in Xinjiang to a whole lot of issues. There's much, much, much greater awareness um, and there is a regulatory approach that is gaining traction around companies have to do, having to do more due diligence about their supply chain. So that's a real positive. Faith leaders certainly are putting modern slavery at front and centre of, of issues they care about. That's really encouraging. Uh, in terms of the models of philanthropy and so on, I think we have to think about two things. I think the model of outside northern western organizations going in and saying we know the solutions is absolutely wrong right but often the northern organizations have access to money and access to capital so i think there's a huge need i mean we talk about shifting power shifting power from the north to the partners working on on the front lines of the problem we can mobilize resources which are desperately needed i would love that there were millions of dollars that could be accessed within nepal for this there isn't but we can access the funding and then we can work very closely with those who really know how to address the problem and provide them with the, the support and the funding to make a difference. So I, I think we have to work out what works from the north, the, the minority world, and what works in terms of, you know, kind of stepping back and recognizing true expertise. Mm. And how do you reconcile the, I guess, the, the reality that on the one hand, those individuals on the front lines in the local communities with lived experience or are ex- exposed to that have a certain insight and expertise that you simply don't have in the global north on the other hand in the global north you you may you know many of these foundations with the huge resources and endowments that you're talking about 
I would qualify a sort of almost quasi-academic institution, you know, full of Oxbridge and Ivy League analysts, uh, well-versed in the peer-reviewed journals, evidence-based. How do you reconcile both of these things so that you don't have one imposing over the other, but you're, you're really leveraging the best of both worlds? So I think there's a couple of really encouraging trends in philanthropy that we, we could talk, out, uh, talk about forever, right? One is, as I said, more collaboration and collaborative funds, uh, which is about sharing knowledge as well as sharing funds. But the other is a move uh, in the most progressive um, foundations towards trust-based philanthropy, right? Where you understand you are not the experts, you have the resources, so you will hand over the resources and trust in the grantee or grantees to use those wisely. And the most obvious example would be Mackenzie Scott, um, the former wife of Jeff Bezos, who has given away, um, I think, you know, over eight or nine billion dollars. In fact, it's over over ten billion dollars in the last three years in unrestricted grants to grantees. We were a recipient of thirty-five million dollars from Mackenzie Scott. Um, had a phone call, was told we were successful, received the funding in two weeks, no conditions whatsoever, trusting in us to then, and then, of course, that enables us to scale up, and then we have passed that forward or paid that forward by making trust-based grants to our um, partners, particularly those that are led by survivors, because they have the better understanding of how that money can be used to transform the, um, the issue that they're trying to address. So I think there's a lot more that can be done, right? I think... I think funders, and, and again, particularly in a context of Black Lives Matter, decolonization of aid, are thinking about power. You always have power if you have money. Uh, you might want to pretend you don't, but of course you do. There are, there are many more grantees and potential grantees than there are funders. So funders, by definition, have power. It's how they check their power or exercise it responsibly, and I, I've been encouraged um by that movement it's something we because we are both a recipient of that and then as i said a funder of 140 or so organizations so we're trying to 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 practice what we preach as well mm. yeah, very interesting now in terms of moving the um i guess the global sustainability agenda forward yes it's the philanthropy and this the funders that you're alluding to but obviously the corporate world is also well, in terms of resources unrivaled uh, let's say uh, with government uh, hand in hand and uh, and there is a, a sincere desire i think from the corporate space to try to improve things on the um, on the global sustainability front it is self-serving but i think uh, it it's, it bodes well for for where we want to go let me ask you you touched on it briefly uh, you mentioned supply chains and you mentioned fast fashion more than once since we've been uh, speaking, I have been approached many times with corporates asking me, you know, how do we as a corporate mitigate reputational risk? How do we as a corporate address any sort of issues that might be uh, hidden within our supply chains, which these days are international, opaque, sometimes difficult to to um, to really track down? Give us a little bit of a flavor on that front and what can be done. If, if, if a CEO is listening to this, and a private sector CEO is listening to this, what can they do? Corporates are absolutely key, right? If we can transform corporate behavior vis-a-vis -vis their supply chains, that, that will do more than anything that we could ever hope to achieve. I think, though, to do that, we have to understand the incentives that drive corporates, right? They are responsible to their principal stakeholders. Their principal stakeholders invariably are their shareholders. Their principal purpose is to maximize financial returns. That's all entirely legitimate. 
But if you are focused only on maximizing financial returns to your shareholders, you then have to minimize costs to increase your margins. And often there is a willingness then to ignore negative externalities. And sometimes it's regarded as next negative externality is the cost of labor in the supply chain of your supplier or their supplier, right? You just don't, you might put in place a nice policy that says we absolutely refuse to accept, uh, you know, forced labor, child labor, but you don't do anything more than that. And then also internally, the incentives might be to maximize financial returns, your benefit structure, your KPIs, your objectives are all measured around that, not around digging deep into your supply chain and ensuring that not only your direct suppliers, or well, not only your own operations, but your direct suppliers, but their suppliers are taking reasonable measures to ensure that there's not forced labor. So I think I absolutely accept that many corporates want to do the right thing. Um, but I think we have to then reflect that in the incentive structure. Right? I find it fascinating when, when a big engineering company says we will have absolutely no work de workplace deaths or issues and refocuses intensely on that. And the incentives are changed and the priorities are changed and all the rest of it to ensure that they have minimal um, you know, workplace issues. It can be done, but it's done through the incentives that reflect the, the, the structural nature of, uh, of business, I think. Um, so I think we need to do, and then there's regulation, which of course then changes the incentives from the outside. So in Europe, we are seeing a real push to mandatory human rights due diligence, where companies have to have a proper strategy in place to look at issues, human rights issues in their supply chain. That's a good thing. It changes the incentives for corporates. It therefore means that they can legitimately focus their effort and attention on these issues. They're not peripheral anymore. They're central. So I think forward-leaning companies can absolutely do more. But you have to, you know, it's also hard because let's not pretend it doesn't cost to dig deep into your supply chain. I have no, I have no time for activists who say, hey, if you do this, everything will be better and cheaper. No, it costs to dig deeper into your supply chain. But we're saying that cost is, is an important and acceptable cost. And if you change the regulation, then it becomes an acceptable cost of business and you aren't being, you aren't being punished against peers who are doing nothing because that's also the problem, right? The free rider. Well, we, we, we look after our supply chains, but our competitors are doing nothing and benefiting from, you know, even lower labor costs. And, and so, so I think there's a lot of movement there. Sorry, I've gone on, but I think it's a really important question. No, no, it's great. Um, and in terms of more practical, granular advice you might have, perhaps not necessarily to the CEO of that big corporate, but perhaps for that person who is leading the sustainable business function in-house, where should they look to if they genuinely want to not just mitigate reputational risk, but truly weed out any unsavory things happening in their supply chains? Where should they go to for best practice, for, for ideas and, uh, and tools to, to help them do this? Um, it's the chief procurement officer that we're targeting, right? That's the person you want. And first of all, they have to be incentivized to do it. And there is, there is, um, there are companies that do this very, very well. I mean, we all have heard of, say, Patagonia. Um, I this this t-shirt, this um, sweater I'm wearing is by a company called Askit, uh, and they list all of their suppliers, even on the tag, where they're sourcing from. And there's great transparency. And it's not just around labor, but it really helps to know where you're sourcing from and who your suppliers are. Um, so there are models of best practice out there. And there is a growing business of just um, advisory services 
that look at supply chains because the scrutiny is growing, right? As I, I was talking about Coltan and Congo, right? People are looking at Apple and Tesla. Where are they sourcing their um, their minerals from? Um, and what are the costs of, of doing that? Now, those are major companies and, and invest a lot. So it's easier for them to, to apply the resources, but we need a level playing field. So it's a combination of regulation and expertise um, that I think on this issue that everyone says they care about, you know, I'm not, not in support of regulations for regulation's sake, but, but if you do care about this, good regulation creates a level playing field, creates the incentives for you to invest in cleaning up your supply chain without losing a competitive advantage to, to your peers. And by extension, moving beyond that chief procurement officer, let's say, and looking at the consumer, anything in particular that they should be mindful of when they're making a purchase and thinking, you know what, let's, let's, let's be mindful of how we, how we spend our money. Yeah, I think consumer power is really, um, a consumer um, behavior is really important. I don't want to put the responsibility on a consumer because often they just don't have access to the information, right? I mean, you could look at your shirt and you might not know where it's sourced from. And even if you know where it's sourced from, you might not, not know which factory it's been sourced from. So it's hard. But what I think we can say is consumers can ask the questions and show to companies they are interested in this. You can start changing your behavior, but you can also just as I said, ask the questions. I mean, my my eldest daughter, who's 17, buys a lot of recycled clothes. And, you know, this generation of millennials and Gen Zs are a lot more interested in issues of sustainability writ large. And often it's around the environment, but I keep on talking, what you're talking about sustainability, think about human sustainability, worker sustainability. And I think there is a push. Um, I think... You know, I'll be really interested to see where we are with fast fashion in a decade's time, because I think there's probably going to be a pushback against, you know, the throwaway culture um, and the costs of that to the environment and to individuals. Um, so consumers can accelerate it, but I don't want companies saying it's a consumer's responsibility because they just don't have access to the information they need. Yeah. Let me ask you about your website address. What's your website address? So it's www.freedomfund.org. Okay. And you mentioned a very generous gift from McKinsey Scott before, but presumably you do rely also on the generosity of donors and the public. Is that correct? So we rely on the generosity of private donors, uh, foundations. We don't, uh, we don't actively seek donations from members of the public, although we always welcome them. Um, we have a number of funders, significant funders who commit, you know, unrestricted funding. Uh, and we also receive some government funding as well from the U.S. State Department in particular um, and the Norwegian. So our our annual budget now, so we were founded in 2014. Um, I was the very first employee. Um, we we had backing of three generous um, foundations then, um, Walk Free, um, Legatum and Humanity United. So that was the seed capital that got us um, started. Our budget now is about $28 million US a year, uh, which we use, among other things, to support and fund over 140 um, organizations, as well as work around corporate accountability and survivor leadership and, and so on. So, you know, it's, but, okay, so that that's where we're at. That's been a lovely, lovely trajectory. We're probably one of the second or third largest anti-slavery organizations working internationally. Um, the scale of the profits made every year from slavery 
estimated back in 2014 was $150 billion. So it's almost certainly well over $200 billion, $300 billion a year. The profits from the perpetrators of slavery. And here we are at $27 million, $28 million, and one of the biggest in the space. Um, so there, there, there's a whole David and Goliath issue here um, that, that, that we have to find ways of addressing. And the way we can do it is by systems change and getting laws changed and changing behaviours. But it's, uh, it's a, a slightly unequal fight. I'll ask a question, perhaps a rhetorical question here, but my conjecture is that you would be more than happy to hear from people who are listening to this episode who might be running a foundation or who might be running an NGO in country X and might be interested in collaborating and, and exploring work, ways of working with you. Am I right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, of course. And, you know, I keep on coming back to collaboration as being key. I think, I think if we want to have... Our objective is to have outsized impact, right? That should be the, the objective of every nonprofit. Right? We exist to drive positive change, but we can't drive that change by just growing, right? partly because the bigger we grow, the more we have to spend on fundraising. So unlike businesses that grow successfully, right, they get more income, more revenue, and hopefully bigger profits, it actually costs us more to raise capital as we get bigger. So what we have to do is kind of a, a jujitsu, you know, kind of flip it on its head. How do we scale impact? We scale impact by changing systems, by changing laws, or we scale impact by collaborating with others. Uh, that's how we scale impact. Um, and so that's what I'm focused on. Yeah. And so you were employee number one, first ever employee at the Freedom Fund. Um, give us a little bit of a, a flavor of your, um, your career trajectory, your personal narrative, how you ended up where you are today. Sure. So I, I started off life as a corporate lawyer, a corporate litigator at a big international law firm. And I, um, but I, I kind of had a, a bit of a transformative. I, I, I then spent some time working pro bono for legal aid in Australia, where I was exposed to, you know, desperately underserved populations and, and the inequities of the justice system. I, um, I spent a chunk of time working at Goldman Sachs here in London. Uh, I worked for the Australian government. I was chief of staff to the attorney general. So I got very interested in the policy side. And then I decided I wanted to pursue a, a non-profit career. I, I went to the US and did a master's in public policy and went to work for a, an amazing organization, the International Crisis Group. Uh, and I see you previously interviewed uh, the current CEO, Comfort Hero, who is a good friend of mine. Great. And I spent nine rewarding years there um, and was recruited from there by um, Andrew and Nicola Forrest who had founded Walk Free Foundation, and I became the first CEO there. That was working on, on modern slavery. And then Walk Free became one of the co-founders of the Freedom Fund. So I kind of then transitioned into the Freedom Fund. And here I am eight years, almost nine years later. Excellent. I bet you when you were working at Goldman Sachs, you didn't, you didn't envision this trajectory. I didn't. I, I, I think you could take five-year intervals throughout my career, and I wouldn't have envisaged what I was doing five years later um, at any of them. Good for you. Very good for you. And it's nice that you touch on uh, on the fact that we, we had uh, Comfort Arrow, the chief executive of International Crisis Group on the show. We also, for reference to our listeners, uh, had uh, Mabel Vanarangi on the show uh, a while back, who heads up uh, Girls Not Brides or founded it. And uh, a lot to be said for tackling the issue of, of girl brides, uh, children who are who, who get into marriage. Yeah, it's another form of extreme exploitation. So tackling child marriage. I was actually on the board with Mabel for for six or seven years of Girls Not Brides. Um, so we've often collaborated. Uh, we're both on the board, uh, the advisory board of another wonderful organization um, called Global Witness. 
which works on you know conflict minerals and corruption and the interlinkages between environmental destruction and corruption and finance. Um, so uh, yeah. Great. A key takeaway for our listeners, is there one key thing you'd love for them to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's episode? Yeah, I think if you're in the philanthropic or nonprofit space, it's all about scaling impact. Um, and to me, scaling impact means changing the systems and collaborating. Uh, how do we work most effectively with the relatively limited resources available to us to have the greatest possible impact? And it can be done. Uh, and it can best be done by looking at the systems and working well with others. Perfect. Nick, thank you so much for joining us today, for sharing your insight. Uh, a lot to be, uh, a lot to take in, really, in terms of the realities that are happening here and for, and for raising awareness for this issue. So thanks for joining us today on the Do One Better podcast, and here's to your continued success. Thanks, Alberto, and thanks for having me on your show. It's been great. Perfect. And that's a wrap. Thanks very much for tuning in. As always, you've been listening to a great chat with Nick Grano, Chief Executive Officer of the Freedom Fund. For information about this conversation and 200 other interviews and case studies with remarkable folks in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship, just visit our website at Ligi.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find the show as well. Thanks so much for tuning in, and I'll catch you on Monday.